We come this morning to the penultimate message in our exposition of the book of 1 John, and therefore I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. As the Apostle John now closes his first epistle, he highlights some, but not all, of the monumental certainties of Christianity. These are the certainties when you are struggling spiritually and when your Christian life is not going as you would otherwise want it to go, that you can latch on to in order to be greatly encouraged. When you are grasping for spiritual help and assurance, be encouraged of these three sets of we knows. Let me show you what these great certainties are given to us in 1 John 5 verses 18 to 20. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I want you to notice that as each of these verses begin, they state these certain certainties of Christianity, and I have grouped them in the following way. Number one, verse 18 calls us to revel in the certainties of promise and protection. Secondly, in verse 19, we see the certainties of parentage and power. And in verse 20, the certainties of provision and participation. If you followed along as I read, you read with me these three we knows. We know, verse 18, we know, verse 19, and we know, verse 20. These are great we knows. They are phenomenal. They are of great encouragement to us. And the first great set of certainties has to do with the truths of promise and protection. Read verse 18 again with me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. As I said, the first pair of great certainties by which John intends to encourage us is the promise of sanctification and Christ's protection from Satan. How does John tell us about this in verse 18? Well, he first of all reminds us of this great truth in the first part of the verse that has Christians, we will not continue to sin in the same way that non-Christians sin. 
Notice what he says again. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You remember when we studied several times now in this exposition of 1 John that being born of God means that God the Father, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has regenerated us, made us alive, created us anew, brought us fresh spiritual life. We've moved out of the realm of sin and death, and we have received, created anew by God, a fresh life. We are finally alive to the spiritual realities. For instance, like who Christ really is. Because before we were born again, before we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we didn't fully recognize or affirm who Christ is. But now we do. Even when we repented and believed in Christ, it was because we were born again. God created us to understand the need for repentance. And He caused us to be born again so that we would understand that we must believe in Christ. It is our blessing that we've been promised this regeneration. What a great blessing. What a great encouragement. You remember 1 John 5, 1? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been regenerated, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Of him. The only reason that we can love the Father, the only reason that we can love others who have been loved by the Father is because the Father has loved us. He's caused us to be born again. What John means here by Christians not sinning is the same sense that we do not sin in the way that non-Christians sin. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about we don't keep on sinning as though we do not sin anymore. Obviously we do. But we don't sin in the same way that non-Christians do. We don't reject the Lord Jesus Christ as those who had done in John's day, who denied the reality of who Christ is, who denied His full humanity and His His full deity. We embrace Christ. We don't reject Him as they do. We haven't denied the reality of who Christ is in both His person and His work. And John has been moving all the way throughout this first letter to try to help us realize, to recognize, to discern that there are really those who deny the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. And John says, you aren't one of those. You aren't one of those. You remember in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he's essentially saying the same thing that he said there. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Sin is lawlessness. It's a certain kind of sinning. And it's a sinning that denies the reality of who Christ is. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. That is, sinning in the way that these non-Christians, these heretics, these apostates that John keeps referring to do. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from 
the beginning. Verse 9, no one born of God, that's our phrase again, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And remember, John is talking about this in the context of how these apostates, these secessionists, these unbelievers, these heretics who have denied the reality of who Christ is. And that's why John says in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't let anybody deceive you because if they deceive you, you'll go on sinning like they do who deny Christ, who deny His humanity, who deny His divinity. And that's why they went out from us because they were not really of us. And that's why he says in chapter 5, just a little earlier than the text we're studying this morning, it is those who commit sins that lead to death, the latter part of verse 16. There is that sin and it leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He's not saying that you shouldn't pray for it. He's saying, I'm not commanding you that you should. Why? Because these are heretics blasphemers, apostates. And if God has given up on them, I don't even say that you should pray for that. And what is the difference? We're in a different realm. How so? Because we have been born of God. He's fathered us. And as I said to you last time, no matter what sin you've committed as a Christian... And you should strive to fight sin of any degree or any kind as a Christian. But no matter what sin you've committed as a Christian, you are born from above. You're born again and therefore you are not to be grouped alongside those who sin against the Lord by denying His person and work. And there is a kind of sinning that is tantamount to a sin which leads to death which consigns a person to eternal judgment for which there is an ultimate rejection of God's Son. And yet you believers, Christians, lovers of God, because you've been born of God, you have a promise, a promise from God that this will never happen to you because you're truly born again. It's a promise from God's own Word right here in 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's an absolute certainty right out of Holy Scripture. It ought to be a great encouragement to every one of us. Every one of us. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. It's a promise. And God never, ever, ever goes back on His promises. Because He cannot lie. Because He is utterly trustworthy. And, and how does God keep His promise to us that we're not going to sin like the non-Christians who reject our Lord Jesus? Notice how John goes on to say in verse 18, But 
He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You see how God does it? By protection. It's the certainty, not only of promise, that anybody who is born of God does not keep on sinning like those whom John rejects and like those to whom John writes should reject. We don't go on sinning like that because there is the certainty of protection because he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. It's because God the Father, through the person and work of the Son, protects the believer and as a result, the evil one, which is just another name for Satan, does not touch the Christian. Doesn't touch us. In other words, we are perpetually protected by Christ so that we are not ever going to be sinning in such a way that we reject the true Christ and the true gospel. Now that, my friends, is a, an enormous, an enormous certainty that God has promised because He's fathered us that we will never go off the wrong course and otherwise reject the true Christ and the true gospel because we're protected by God. Now I know inevitably someone's going to say, but wait a minute, I know of a person there was a friend of mine or there was somebody that I once knew who I was convinced was a true Christian and they ultimately rejected the gospel even to their dying day or I don't know what happened to them but I assume they're still in this Christ-rejecting state and how can it be that someone who has been born of God is not protected by God? This verse says it is not so. It is not so. And the inevitable consequence of someone that you knew who professed faith in Christ, who is not walking with Christ, is therefore someone who is rejecting Christ. You say, well, isn't it true that someone can lay claim to Christ and then be away from Christ and then come back to Christ? I suppose so. The question is, how much time? What are the circumstances? Is it really true that they came to Christ in the first place? For so many who say that they once loved Christ and who then turned their back on Christ and who are walking with Christ today might also tell you, I probably didn't even know Christ when I said I did. But we have the certainty, my friends, the certainty. Look at it again. He who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And I think what John is saying is, once we are born again by God, that is, He becomes our Heavenly Father, we cease sinning in the same way that Christ rejectors do. And this is so because, as he says here, He who was born of God protects Him. Now, who is this who was born of God? Well, some commentators say that this is a reference to Christ. Christ being begotten of God, born of the Father. And I would suggest that this latter half of the verse is somewhat difficult to translate into English because of the possibilities of the rendering of this Greek syntactical structure of the sentence. And while the ESV does translate it in such a way that they imply that the words, He who was born of God, should be understand, understood as meaning the person of Christ, I prefer another translation here. In the Net Bible, the New English translation regarding this verse, it 
renders it this way. We know that everyone fathered by God does not sin, but God protects the one He has fathered, and the evil one cannot touch Him. In other words, it's something like this. The one fathered by God, the Christian, which is consistent, I think, throughout First John about who is the one who was born of God, the one fathered by God, the Christian, He, God, protects Him, the Christian. God fathers you and God protects you through Christ, not only through His death, but His continuing sustaining power. He protects you, the believer. Yes, it's true that the one who is born of God could be a reference to the incarnation of Jesus. It could be that. Or it could be, as I see it here, that the Christian is protected by the one who fathers him. God protects you through Christ so that you as a Christian will be forever protected. Forever. Protected by God. And why would we need to be forever protected by God? Because frankly, left to ourselves, left to our own strength, left to our own power, where would we be? Would we be able to sustain all the assaults of the evil one? He's far more cunning than we are, far more intelligent than we are, far more sneaky than we are. If we don't have the protecting power of God, who is continually, even when we don't ourselves perceive that we're being protected, needs to protect us because we cannot in our own strength protect ourselves. We just can't. That's why John keeps saying to them, let no one deceive you. 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 1 John 3.7, I read it a moment ago. Little children, let no one deceive you. We need God's protection or else we would be in our human volition, in our human thinking, be conned. We'd be deceived. That's why it says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Only the Son of God can do that kind of righteous destruction of Satan's works. We're in that sense, in our own strength and in our own power, powerless to ourselves fight against the devil and his angels. That's why 1 John 4, 4 says it. And this is, this is that promise of protection. Here it is. Little children, you are from God. There's that sense of you being fathered by God. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the evil one. He's the God of this world. He's the ruler of this age. And do you think, do I think, that we could possibly stand against Him in our own strength, that we could continue to persevere all the way through to the end of our Christian lives, to receive glory, to see Jesus Christ face to face on our own, in our own strength, with our own ingenuity, with our own backbone? Not at all. Not at all. And that's why we must cling to the certainty not only of, of the promise of God that we've been born again, fathered by Him. We don't keep on sinning in the way that others do who reject Jesus Christ, but we also have the certainty of the, of the protection of God. He protects us. We, we persevere. 
You've heard of the perseverance of the saints. That's a reference to what we're doing to continue to obey. We might otherwise affirm the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, that God preserves us. He protects us. He helps us. And I love what 1 John 5.18 says, the evil one does not touch him. Haptomai means to harm someone or to perpetrate some hostile action towards someone. We're protected from that. Satan can, can work his works of destruction. He can harm. He can deceive. He can con those who aren't Christ's. And he does it every day. And he does it by any means at his disposal. And he's a liar. And he's a robber. And he's a thief. And he'll do whatever he can, pragmatically so, to bring a person down so that they will be forever unbelieving. He'll do it. And he'll do it every time because he's a liar He's the father of lies. He's lied from the very beginning. And he would do it if he could, even to the elect, if it were possible. But we have a promise, my friends. This promise says the evil one does not touch him. Doesn't touch you. Doesn't harm you. Doesn't perpetrate some kind of evil, hostile action against you. It says he protects. Tereo means to guard to keep, to watch over, to preserve. And by the way, that sense of the verb there that he protects, present, active, guarding, or protecting. He never takes a day off, never slacks, never slumbers, never sleeps, never is idle. We are constantly and continually under the promise and protective hand of Almighty God. That's a promise from 1 John 5.18. What a promise. You say, well, I need more of those promises. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter, chapter 10. You want a promise? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10.27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. That means I have a relationship with them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will what? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. That means greater than than even Satan himself who is not omnipresent, who is not omniscient. Yes, he's cunning. Yes, he's devilish and rude and crude and a liar. And yes, he has great skill in deceiving and destroying, but he's not greater than the Father. And Jesus said, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. A double protection. Protection by the Son, protection by the Father. Look at John 17. Listen to Jesus' prayer to the Father. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. How is it? How is it that they have kept your word? Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. We keep because He's kept us. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You're not going to be touched. You're not going to be touched in the ultimate sense, in the salvation sense, and even in the sanctification sense, God will allow you to persevere because He will preserve you. That's the certainty of promise and protection. Here's the second one. Second set of certainties. The certainties of parentage and power. Verse 19. Verse 19. We know that we are from God. We know, there it is again, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are from God. He's already essentially said that, hasn't he? We're born of God. We belong to Him. He's fathered us. And I've called this the certainty of our parentage because John clearly demonstrates here in verse 19 that as Christians, we have as our spiritual source of origin a relationship with our Heavenly Father. As over against what he says in the same verse, the relationship the world of unbelievers has with their father, the devil. You see what he says? And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But not you. Not you. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, you don't lie in that realm. You're not in Satan's grip. He can't touch you. By the way, that phrase, lies in the power of, in the grip of, in the sphere of, in the domain of, in union with, or maybe even under the authority of the evil one. That's, that's the world. They lie in the grip, the power of Satan. He's their parent. But we're in the grip, the power, the protection of our Heavenly Father. We're spiritually parented, begotten, born from God. We are from God. As I've said... This isn't to say that we are scot-free. This isn't to say that we have no battles with Satan and temptation. This isn't to say that we never have problems with the trials and temptations of life that Satan might come to attempt to destroy us with. We're not totally oblivious to the idea of Satan and his works. We know what he's about, and sometimes we fall to his ploys, don't we? But He can't ultimately touch us. He can't ultimately harm us. And God will preserve us in His preserving power so that we aren't lying in the grip, the domain, the union with the evil one. I mean, I don't want to let you in on anything other than Satan is real, but God is greater. Satan's real. There's no question about it. Look back at chapter 2, verse 15. Why would John say this to us? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Yes, it is real. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, it is real. It is very real. And it is very tempting. And we sometimes do fall to those temptations. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us in unmistakable language that yes, it is true that Satan is a powerful being. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan has the power of death. He's the ruler of this world. And for unbelievers, he can kill them if God so chooses. Yes, it's, it's absolutely true. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, But be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may, listen to this, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Yes, ensnared to do Satan's will, the the death grip of Satan the enticing worldliness of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about Satan as blinding the minds of unbelievers, has blinding power. And for everybody in the world who's in union with the world, Satan blinds them and he entices them and he ensnares them and he could, if God wills, even kills them. Jesus even said in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world. He's powerful. He's a formidable foe. The most formidable one you know. And yet, even with all of that, the Bible's certain promise is that the evil one does not touch you. Can't ultimately harm you. That's why Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, calls you to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist the flaming missiles of the darts of the evil one. But you have that power. You have the shield of faith and all of the other armaments. Yes, John 14.30 says, The evil one rules this world. But Jesus said two chapters later in John 16.30, The ruler of this world is judged. He's judged. He has an end. He will be judged. He will be consigned to judgment forever. And the power to overcome the lusts of the world... Lust of the flesh, the prideful boastings of life is the power of the Word of God through prayer. Satan can't touch you and I in that ultimate sense. Oh yes, it's true that he will tempt us and we will sometimes fall to his temptation, but we will not utterly fall. We will not fall headlong like Judas. It's not true. We have the certainty of God's parentage and power. Power. Do you see that in First? 
John 5.19. God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yes, he's powerful. But he doesn't have the power of God. He can't do what God does in God's awesome power. You have the certainty of a power that is greater in you than the power that is in the world. You believe that? Do you, do you live that way? Or do you say as a Christian, I, I just seem to be so powerless. I seem not to be able to resist the temptations of the devil or the world. Well, my friends, regrip on the encouraging word of the power of God. God protects him, the Christian. And we're from God. He's fathered us. And even though the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, God protects you by his sustaining power. Rely on that power. Rely on it. Don't hedge against it. Don't get so close to the world that you see how close you can get to the world and yet still rely on the power of God. You're going to fall. Don't walk where it's slippery. Don't do it. Rely on the power of God and stay as far away from the lusts of the eyes and the flesh and the boastful pride of life as you possibly can. Why? Because the certainty of God is this. The certainty of God is this. He fathered you and He is protecting you and He is greater than the power of that which is in the world. It's a promise. These are all indicatives here. This is indicative of who we are in Christ. We have the power of God. And thirdly, the certainties of provision and participation. Verse 20. And we know, there's that third we know, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Certainty of provision. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. What is this provision? It's the provision of understanding. You and I understand who Christ is, what the gospel is, how to live the Christian life, how to say no to sin, how to avoid temptation because the Son of God has come and has given it to us. What a, what a grand promise. What a great provision. I remember outside of Christ growing up as a young man, as a teenager, that I had no clue. I had no answer. I had no answer to the world's great questions. I had no answers even for the problems and issues of my own life. I had no answers. I was clueless. I was ignorant. I had no understanding. I did not have the wisdom of God to be able to navigate through the complexities of this life. I didn't have it. Some of you may be sitting there and you don't have that understanding. But notice what it says. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us 
understanding. If you're a Christian, you have that understanding for what purpose? So that we may know Him who is true, God the Father. God the Father has brought Christ into the world so that we could be shown the Father. That's why in John chapter 7, Jesus is said to continually, continually, continually show us the Father. How many times is that written in the gospel accounts? John chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You want to know him who is true? Know Christ. Because Christ specifically came to give you the understanding of him, the Father, who is true. That's That's who you can know. You can have an understanding of the Father. He says later in verse 28, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. You want to know him who is true? Have the understanding by Christ of the Father, because the Father is true. That's what John says. Him who is true. John 14 tells us who is true. John 14, 5. Lord, we do not know where you are going and and how can we know the way? Understand the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. You want to know the Father? Know the Son. You want to know the Son? You'll know understanding about the Father through the Son. That's, that's amazing that Jesus says this over and over and over again. John 17, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. First part of verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I have given them your word. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known just over and over and over again, all the way through First John. Knowing the truth, knowing the Father, and you know the Father through the Son because in the Father is truth because the Son reveals it. You have the certainty of provision. And participation. Look at the middle part of verse 20. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. We're in the truth, the truth of the Father, and we're in union with the Father through His Son. Participation, or if you want, union. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. I dare say, for me, in my study of Scripture, there may not be more blessed doctrine than I have ever studied 
than union with Jesus Christ. Union with Christ. Because apart from union with Christ, we have none of these certainties. None of them. We are hanging on the coattails of Christ. Union with Christ. We are participating with Christ. Notice what he says. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Not talking about some kind of spatial inhabitation. It's talking about their participation, their union with us. Notice, we are in Him. We are in Christ. They have participation with us. Oh, and I can't, I can't finish without the end of verse 20. He is the true God and eternal life. Who's this referring to? Is it referring to the Father or the Son? He is the true God and eternal life. Well, commentators are, are split between whether it's a reference to the Father or the Son. Could it be a reference to the Father? Yes, certainly it could. Mainly because it could give us a sort of threefold understanding of the Father. Notice, number one, so that we may know Him who is true. That's a reference to the Father. Secondly, we are in Him who is true. That's a reference to the Father. He is the true God the Father, and eternal life. Would certainly make sense, would give us the sense that all three of these references in verse 20 are references to the Father. Sounds compelling, could be the case. In fact, it could be this because he's bracketing the end of 1 John now with the beginning of 1 John. Go back to 1 John 1. Look at 1 John 1, verses 2 and 3. See if this is not very, very similar now to the ending of 1 John 5. 1 John 1, 2 through 3. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, that's participation, that's union, And indeed, our fellowship, our participation, our union is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, in that order. So we might be saying, yes, we are are knowing Him who is true, the Father. We are in Him who is true, the Father. He is the true Father. He is the true God and eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 16 of 1 John 5 says that God will grant the interceded for a believer all the benefits of the eternal life they've received through Christ, but it's God who grants it. And this may even be a reference to the Father. If you look at John's word in John 17, 3, which says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father and Son, Jesus Christ. Almost the exact same language. So there's a lot to commend this phrase as being a reference to the Father and not the Son. And there would be no damage done at all. It could very well be in the largest context a reference to the Father. But this also, my friends, could be a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, what's the nearest antecedent? What's the nearest proper noun, as we might say? Jesus Christ, period. This is the true God 
and eternal life. This is, is the literal rendering. And it's no problem for the ESV to say He is because it's talking about either the Father or the Son. So if it's a reference to the Father, He is eternal life, He's the true God, or it could be the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Could fit as well, grammatically, theologically. Could be a reference to the deity of Christ. In fact, what does John 1, 1 say? We read it earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's an unmistakable reference to the deity of Christ. Absolutely the case. Verse 18, the only begotten God, the only God who has manifested, revealed, exegeted the Father. Unmistakable reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. You remember Thomas said in John 20, 28, when he said, did Jesus touch my side? And Thomas did so, and he became not doubting Thomas, but affirming Thomas when he said, my Lord and my what? God. Unmistakable reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5, the blessed God, a reference unmistakably to Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, unmistakable reference to the deity of Christ. Hebrews 1, thy throne, O God, referring to Christ as superior to all angels and to every other being, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, a reference to the deity of Christ. Those are just a few. There are many allusions to the deity of Christ. This, this could be one of those. But in the end, whether he's talking about the Father or the Son, they occupy the persons of the Godhead along with the Holy Spirit, and so either one of them, frankly, will do. They'll do. Because God the Father is God, the first person of the Godhead. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, the second person of the Trinity, And the Holy Spirit is God to make up the three persons of the one God. This or He is the true God and eternal life. Father or Son, distinct in their persons, unified in their essence, along with the Spirit. This, my friends, is a great way to end this great book. In fact, you might even say that John intends to end it this way. He is the true God and eternal life, whether a reference to the Father or the Son, because he's going to say one last verse, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Serve the true God. Bask in the eternal life of the Father through the Son and the power of of the Spirit and serve no other idols, would-be gods. Keep yourself from them. Great certainties. Great certainties. Do Do you live in them? Do you live in light of them? The certainties of promise and protection, parentage and power, provision and participation. Do you live in light of them? Is it indicative of you? I trust that you would say in your heart and your life, While I don't live up to the realities of these certainties, I love them. 
They're doctrines which are sweet to me. And I want to live up to them each and every day in a more progressive way because I need this promise. I need protection. I have the Father as my parent. I must have His power. I have to have His provision. And I love participation in Him. It's my my very life breath. Oh, I trust that it's true of you for all of us who love Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, promise, protection, parentage, power, provision, participation. Thank you for these three we knows. And I ask this morning, of our people, do you really know it? Do you really know it? Do you live in light of it? Do you thank God the Father for them? These great certainties. They are not all the certainties of Christianity, but they are certain certainties that are great and marvelous and awe-inspiring and lovely and beautiful. And, O Father, I pray that we, as those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, would avail ourselves of thinking about them, of responding to them, of living in light of them, and thanking You for them each and every day. Lord, we confess that we don't often think of these things. We don't often thank You for Your promises, Your protection, Your parenting, Your power, Your provision, Your participation, but we thank You now. And may a message like this, Lord, reverberate in our hearts from day to day. Even beyond just the reading of of 1 John 5, 18 to 20, that we would grip on these things, that we would think of these certainties, especially when we're down and discouraged, when we need to re-grip on the truths of that which you've promised us so that we would live as victorious, Christ-exalting Christians. Oh, Father, may it be so. And bring us back two weeks from now, if you would will it so, so that we might hear how to keep ourselves from idols, to serve the true God, the one who grants, the one who is eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.